Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. What this world needs is a few more redheads. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. We can use a little peace and satisfaction. Some good people up front take the lead. A little less talk and a little more action. And a few more rednecks is what we need. Coming at you again from the capital city of the free state of Florida, where we are helping to lead the woke back to sanity using truth, the Constitution, and a little redneck common sense. Matt, this has been another monster week in 2024 for the national news scenario. We've got a student loan crisis that we're dealing with, which is helping to pump up inflation. we got some more bad inflation numbers this week. Uh, got a Ukraine funding bill. Of course, it's all tied up with a lot of border politics. And now we've seen that Mitch McConnell is apparently finally relinquishing his hold on power in the United States Senate. So we're going to have a big... Uh, power struggle in the Senate to see who's going to lead that going forward. Um, and then uh, there's been a lot of a lot of news made about the border walk uh, just yesterday, contrasting the health of President Joe Biden with uh, the health of what appears to be future President Donald Trump, if these polls continue to hold, um, to hold true. But we're going to reverse things a little bit this morning, Matt, uh, because uh, usually we talk about national issues first, and then we'll talk about some of the local and state issues. One thing I love about being in Florida, and this all goes back to uh, Ron DeSantis and his effort to become America's governor two or three years ago, which I think he's successfully done, but we have become a state leader in policy. And uh, speaking of the border, we have a number of great leaders in the state who have uh, worked on trade issues. They've worked on uh, immigration issues. They've worked on human trafficking issues, all back to this all ties back to national border issues. And one of our uh, great state representatives, he's a new one, freshman. He's with us in the studio today is Representative Griff Griffiths. Griff, welcome to the program this morning. Thank you for having me, Brad. I, I appreciate you bringing a real redneck with some common sense in here. <laughs> you got all the right qualifications. <laughs> a panhandle boy that is truly uh, a redneck at heart and hopefully have a lot of common sense. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Representative Griffiths, tell us uh, where you're from as far as district. And I'll just mention that you are no stranger to Tallahassee, a graduate of Florida State University. Yes, go Knowles. Uh, born in Panama City Beach, raised right there, District 6. So I'm a Bay County, Bay County local, uh, five generations deep. Um, was in the hotel business there, was a county commissioner for seven years, fell and bumped my head and decided to run for the state house, and, and here we are. <laughs> so, uh, look, Representative, when you were county commissioner, which I always – look, I've been consulting for more than 20 years in the state for various political candidates, and I've always said that the county commission job is the toughest job, right? Yeah, it, uh, it's it's tough, but it's very rewarding. Um, you know, seven years – uh, it was great. I, I really had a great time. But what I was surrounded really with a really good board and really good staff, and that makes it a lot easier. You had a tough challenge. You you had to help guide uh, yeah. the county out of recovery from Hurricane Michael. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was chairman um, of the commission during Michael when it hit in October of 18. 
uh, you know, nothing that I would ever experience before. I'd been through hurricanes in the hotel business. I'd been through hurricanes, but I'd never um, been in a position like that where I had to figure out, uh, just figure out how the process works from the state, the federal level, the funding sources, uh, reimbursement, all these terms of resiliency, redundancy, and those things, and the acronyms that FEMA likes to use, mm-hmm. and the circle of talk that FEMA is the masterful at, at talking and talking kind of like you brett they talk and talk and talk and they just don't really say much <laughs> it's it's the art of politics <laughs> it's the art of politics but uh yeah I've, I've said it many many times over the last five years that the uh the bureaucracy of fema is very very impressive but that's not a compliment um so i learned a lot but it was a great experience um love my people back home and uh, that's why i'm up here in tallahassee is still um fighting for my folks back home not disaster recovery we always hear you know people People in America are, are kind and good-hearted, right? So in the heat of the moment, there's usually this um, overwhelming sense of neighborhood and people come yeah, together. Absolutely. It's, but we always hear it's the time after, you know, yeah. a few weeks deeper, a few months deeper, and you're still picking up the pieces with a community that's been half destroyed, right? But then you're you're looking for reimbursements, all this kind of thing that you're talking about. That's probably the more challenging part of that job. Yeah, I totally agree, Matt. The um, the first few months, everybody's singing from the same page. You're all helping each other out. Everybody's, you know, got a common goal: clean up and let's get back to business. But then the real troubles start, and it's it's insurance, and it's rebuilding, and it's permits, and it's debris removal. Uh, it, it's really it's a a lot. Uh, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Uh, it, you know, we had the largest debris haul done by a county commission in American history. Hmm. Katrina was a larger debris. Wow. Haul. You know, Katrina was larger, but that was done by the Corps of Engineers. But we, uh, you know, we spent three hundred million dollars just about on debris hauling in Bay County alone. So we we had quite a bit of experience with uh, the bureaucracy of FEMA and how to deal with them. But learned a lot. Uh, had great support from around the state. Couldn't have done it without people from around the state coming up to help us, including. We know the first responders come up and help, but the the county managers from Monroe County, the people from you know Louisiana who went through Katrina that came over and gave us pep talks, said, "Hey, these are the lessons we learned. These are where we failed." Um, it, it, that that really is um, super helpful for a community when they go through something like that. I got to ask you this really quickly before we shift and start talking about legislation, but um, just looking at the landscape in Bay County, Panama City proper, and Panama City Beach, which. I guess maybe wasn't quite as affected by Michael, but Panama City uh, proper definitely was. Uh, what would you say the state of recovery is at now? Eighty-five percent, hundred percent? No, not a hundred near. But I would say we're we're seventy-five, eighty-five percent for sure. We've done very well. The recovery from the county levels has been very good on on funding. Um, there's still obviously challenges out there. You still hear stories about insurance issues. People are in litigation five years after the fact. Um, but but I, I would say we've done very well considering. Um, a com- for a community our size, we're you know we're 180,000 people in our county, and uh, we came out of it pretty well considering we've done very well in the last five years. I'm very proud of my community and what they've done. Yeah, I think it's really been a model for yeah, the rest I, of the country. We learn. I think you learn everything after a big event like that, whether it's you know Andrew or Ian or Michael or whatever. But I think you learn a lot, and when you pass those things on, the state we're the best in the in the world at, at disaster. The state of Florida is and. Uh, we have Kevin Guthrie leading the charge, and he's a fantastic EM director, and I think uh, that helps too when you have leadership like that. So let's talk about legislative issues now. This is your mm-hmm. second legislative session. Yes, sir. First of all, tell us this. How do you like it so far compared to the county commission? Oh, it's different. Um, you know, it doesn't take but three people in two weeks to make a vote at the county commission level mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. you got to do a little more work up here for the folks. And uh, 
we're a very diverse state and um us rednecks up here in the panhandle are having to learn to deal with folks from south florida and so that's been an interesting <laughs> interesting learning curve but doing great i enjoy it i enjoy the hard hard work um i don't necessarily enjoy some of the 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 drama that goes along with the politics but i do enjoy the hard work I think it's been interesting to watch how you have immediately gotten funneled into a number of issues by House leadership uh, related to things that you're familiar with and that you've dealt with, both with your career as a building contractor and then also as a county commissioner, and you've been very effective from day one. Uh, One piece of legislation this year that I think would be of interest to our audience and I have watched, it's been very interesting to watch the politics around it has been HB 779, which is the Buy America Act. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, the Buy America bill. That is, um, plain and simple, is that all public works projects in the state of Florida have to use made or manufactured and made iron and steel in the public works projects. Um, The largest exporter of steel in the world is China. Uh, I think we know the problems we have with with China. We've had, you know, drywall, Chinese drywall. We've had lead-based paint with drywall. Senator Scott a few weeks ago was talking about Chinese garlic grown in the sewage. I mean, we, we, we have problems. And so we don't want imperfect steel in public works projects. I don't want you or my friends or family or anyone in the state driving on roads or bridges that might have imperfect steel or iron in them. And so I thought it was a very good, uh, a very good idea to make sure that if we're going to use taxpayer dollars on a public works project, it ought to be the best and truthful. This is, um, this mirrors federal legislation from 1933. Mm-hmm. It's this is not something new. Uh, most federal projects have to use American-made, manufactured iron and steel. So all we're doing is we're mirroring federal legislation. It seems to make a lot of sense. Just as a quick follow-up on that, uh, there were a lot of problems with Chinese drywall. I've also been interested. Uh, I know this relates mainly to public projects, but let me ask you this: in light of the uh, condominium crisis that we had, where you had a condominium basically fall down. Do you think there'll be a move in the future to try to move this over to private industry as well? I think um, I think good contractors in the state pay very close attention to where their products come from. Uh, we don't have a supply chain issue with iron and steel in in Florida at all. We have we have several producers. Frostproof has a large manufacturer of rebar. Uh, we don't have those issues. So I I think people that are paying attention price. It's not an issue. Supply is not an issue. Good contractors will buy American, and I think stick to that, and that will that will benefit us all in the long run. Awesome. We are this morning with Representative Griff Griffiths of Panama City, Florida, the king of redneck common sense. <laughs> stick with us as we get into the next segment. We're going to be talking a little bit about the vacation rentals bill. Never fear. Matt and Brett are here. Or at least they will be. America in View will be right back. Freeing the woke from their liberal chains, it's Matt and Brent Doster with America in View. All right, we're back with Representative Griff- Griffiths this uh, afternoon talking about uh, various issues. Uh, first of all, uh, we just finished up the last segment talking about his Buy America bill related to uh, requiring public projects in the state of Florida to use American iron and steel. I just got to ask you this, uh, Representative, um, has there been any blowback, any blowback from the private sector and any blowback internally? Uh, Actually, the only, I would say the only pushback, which I wouldn't say it's shocking, but is um, Americans for Prosperity, right? Mm -hmm. One of the most conservative think tanks in America. Uh, They're free market 
and so the, this this concerns them about the free market. So they're really the only pushback. Um, there there's a a group of underground utility contractors that are I don't really think understand it very much. They they they're upset maybe a little bit, but in reality, most folks are very positive, been very supportive, uh, understand the concept. It doesn't raise construction prices. Uh, federal legislation has been this way for 90 years. All we're doing is uh, codifying it at the state level. DOT already has it in their practices. Mm-hmm. This is really uh, just codifying it. This makes a little more common sense to put it in statute so that the people know. So, uh, But no, in reality, it's been it's been very positive, and most folks are very supportive. I'm going to ask you one last question, then I'm going to let Matt's got a question for you about vacation rentals. Um, I noticed that in the Senate side, in the Senate chamber, there was only one vote against the bill, against the Buy America bill. And I'm not going to mention any names. I'm not going to provide any embarrassment here. But That's all uh, public record. I can, <laughs> I can check. <laughs> but my question was, uh, was there, what, what was the objection? I mean, is it was it just a play for AFP's uh, support so. down the road? Yeah, I okay. think so. I, you know, okay. AFP gives out those scorecards at the end of the year, and I think some people like to hang their hat on their, their report card versus doing what's right. And so, um, yeah, hey, but listen, everybody's got a mind of their own. They can vote the way they wish. Um, but this is good public policy, and it makes common sense. It makes good redneck common sense. So let's, yeah. I think it's um, it's high time to push this over the finish line. Well, we appreciate you doing it. I know our audience does. I think it's high time, and I think there's going to continue to be bills like this that is pointed Absolutely. at um, yeah. protecting American infrastructure. Uh, Matt, I know that you wanted to ch- uh, chat about vacation rentals, which is a hot topic. Yeah. Yes, and that's another issue that just uh, at this stage, I think just about everybody has some kind of experience with a short-term vacation rental. I certainly have. um, Some people have had experience on both sides of it, either being a renter or uh, being the one doing the renting. Uh, And it's such an interesting policy issue because it really ties in property rights on every level, right? Like, what can I do with my property? And at what point does what I do affect everybody else's property rights? And I know this this has been something of a... a, um, difficult issue for people through the years. It gets into local government versus state government and yeah. so on. Tell us what your bill does and just give us kind of your 30,000 foot view of this issue. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're right. I think it's touched everybody in the state and I don't think anybody expected. I, I was in the hospitality business with my family for 40 plus years. We owned and developed hotels around the state. Um, but travel trends have changed dramatically over the last 20 years, especially the last 10 uh, no one knew what Airbnb or VRBO or Verbo, as they call themselves now, was, you know, 10 years ago. Who would have ever thought you could get on your phone, right, and book a, a house at the Golden Eagle Country Club for three days? And I could do right. it right now tonight on my phone in two minutes. Um, so it's changed a lot. But when balancing private property rights along with just being good neighbors has really been the problem and the challenge. And so the state stepped in in 2011 and preempted everyone because what was going on is essentially you had – local governments trying to outright ban short-term rentals in their communities. And the state felt like private property rights were paramount in that. And I, I, I agree with them uh, there, but there has to be some good common sense legislation, I think, or at least some sort of enforcement mechanisms so that people can try to regulate this. Because when you have a bad actor next to your house, it is awful, right? Oh, yeah. I, I sympathize. And I, I live in a community Panama City Beach has 18,000 registered vacation rentals. Wow. 18,000. I mean, I'm like number three in the state. So I know this problem very intimately. Um, So what the legislation does in in a nutshell is it creates a state registry um, where locals can still create their own registry. Locals can still enforce parking, trash, noise, and occupancy. But they also have to now, if if this passes, there will be a state registry so you can go – 
my bill takes you to the tax collector. Um, I think the tax collector is a more customer service oriented um, constitutional officer versus going to like a building official or a planning and zoning to register a short term rental. You go to the tax collector, you you submit your name of the property, responsible party in case you're not available, federal tax ID, sales tax ID, bed tax ID, and your local inspection if the local inspection report is required, fire inspection, balcony inspection, life and safety issues. Go to the tax collector, you submit your information. The tax collector issues you a unique identifier while registering you at the state registry. The platforms, VRBO, Airbnb, Expedia, have agreed in some level to share some basic data with the registry. So then now what you can do is you can take the state registry and the platform data and cross them and filter them and find the people that are the bad actors, the ones that are on the platforms but that are not registered. Mm -hmm. So we can start finding those folks that are avoiding paying taxes and avoiding the life and safety issues. Um, We're never going to be able to put the genie back in the bottle of 2011 and give locals all the enforcement tools they want. But what I will tell you is um, this will give locals a little bit more it, a couple of more tools in their tool chest. It was, this will allow, not only will they still be able to control noise, parking, trash, um, and occupancy, but now, Matt, as you said, if you have a neighbor next door to you who's a problem, you can get on this registry yourself. John Q. Public can make sure that your neighbor is doing everything above board and, and going through all the hoops that he needs to jump through. But it also allows locals, if there are bad actors, they can file – liens, they can find them and put a lien on your property, mm-hmm. which can in turn turn into foreclosure. That's a pretty serious tool. Um, so, But in reality, what this will do is create a state registry to try to find those people that are not paying their taxes as well as improve the life and safety issues around the state for those folks that are just simply uh, sticking their nose up to City Hall or, or to the state. So Griff, I've noticed um, with new neighborhoods that are coming online now, uh, they draft that into their HOAs. Right. I was going to yeah. say they've been more aggressive in They're, some of yeah. these instances of tra- about taking that care of that and, on the and front an, end. And an old HOA, if you – I just use Golden Eagle because we're in Tallahassee. If Golden Eagle has an HOA, which I don't know if they do, um, but they were drafted so long ago that now it requires pretty much 100% vote of the HOA to change those bylaws. Mm-hmm. And yours probably rentals in there. Those guys are never going to get 100% participation. So uh, it, the older neighborhoods are in a pickle. Mm-hmm. Um, and the newer neighborhoods are are combating that with HOA rules up front and early. We've got a couple of clients down in Marco Island, mm-hmm. and it's very similar to Panama City in that they get a massive upsurge in population. Back yep. during COVID, they had a problem where they were just overwhelmed by people coming in from Palm Beach and Miami, and they were you know three, four, five families renting a place at Absolutely. one time, and uh, it just drove them bananas. Yeah, the occupancy is the really the. You know, that is the the driver of the problems. When you have tons of occupancy, you have tons of trash. You have a mm-hmm. lot of noise. You have parking issues. Mm-hmm. So if you can control the occupancy at some level, that will that will help solve it. And it, in reality, you know, there in 2011, if we could put the genie back in the bottle and redo things going back to that day, there's probably better solutions. But the state is – we're too far down that road. This bill has been in many forms and, and postures over the last decade has failed – and it it might fail this year, but mm-hmm. but we're going to continue to try to push it out to uh, to find those folks. I mean, my community there's there's tattletales everywhere, and if they ride down the street and they see a sign that says, you know, for rent by owner, short term, a lot of people just call the tax collector or the the clerk of the court to make sure that they're registered to pay their taxes, um, because there's a lot of guys just 
trying to fly under the radar. The onesies and twosies, that guy, the big management companies, the hotels, those they're these are not the problems. It's the it's the guy that um is just really not paying attention and just wants to make an extra buck and puts his garage apartment or his mother in law quarters um on the on the platform and goes to work. Well, I think you're the perfect guy to run this bill because not only were you in the hotel business, so you understand hospitality, but number two, you've been in the contracting business in Panama City, where I'm sure people have been buying homes specifically oh. to turn around and use as short-term rentals. Yeah, right? no, it's uh, investment investment rich. A lot of folks doing that, and you know, second homes that they've, you know, in my community too. There's a lot of older beach homes that are maybe two or three generations deep now, and the guy that's in Dothan or Birmingham or Atlanta is like. You know, we go down there twice a year, and I'm paying ten grand in property taxes because it's not homesteaded. Heck, let's just put it on VRBO for a few weeks a summer, and we'll pay at least the taxes. You know, he and he's, I mean, the guy's not a criminal, but he's just not doing everything above board, and so and he is he is skirting the issue of paying bed taxes, and that that's a that's a problem around the state. The uh, Florida Tax Watch did a study that showed that there's an enormous amount of revenue left on the streets by people just skirting the issue. Griff, real quick, because we only got about a minute left, uh, tell us about the pushback from the platforms. Are they on board with this? or They actually, you know, they came in and told me to pound sand. and then, um, <laughs> But actually, after a lot of conversations, a lot of talk, I think we've come to a really good place. The platforms have actually been very, very good. They've come to the table um, with, with ideas and suggestions. They've been a, a very good partner in this. Um, I commend them because they, they really don't have to do much unless we force this. Um, but they have come to the table. I've worked with a lot of, a lot of interested parties. And uh, I would say um, Verbo and Expedia and Airbnb and the Florida Professional Vacation Rental Coalition. They've been excellent partners in this. They've done a great job. Representative Griff Griffiths, the king of common sense. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio this Thanks morning. Good luck Thanks for the for rest of the legislative session. Don't go anywhere. America in View will be right back. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, we're back for segment three. Uh, Matt, I thought that was a great interview with Griff uh, Griffiths, who's a state representative representing Bay County over here in Tallahassee. Yeah, it's always good to talk to him. He's really got um, a lot of insight. I mean, it's the citizen legislature at its best, where you have someone who's in business, he's an entrepreneur, he's a family man, he's been in local government, he just has a lot of insight into everything going on. And you know, the steel and the, the made in America thing is just never a bad idea for America, especially as we saw all the vulnerabilities we had during the COVID crisis and yeah. all of our pharmaceuticals being made over there. And the, just the what happens when you over-depend on, on uh, resources outside of this nation, you get into the, the, the freedom issue, you know, how much should the government mandate how we do things. Now, this particular bill was just mandating what the state government does, so uh, I don't think there's a, any kind of a freedom or constitutional issue there. But uh, the more that we do for ourselves, the better. Well, I appreciate Americans for Prosperity being free traders, and they're consistent in that free trade um, perspective because on paper, free trade makes sense. However, what sometimes happens uh, when you're dealing strictly with free trade and you have absolutely no mandates is you have uh, whole sectors of your economy that are dependent on the labor supply or the supply chain that is uh, primarily held by another country. And in this case, we're seeing uh, vast uh, swaths of America's America's pharmaceutical industry as well as our military supply chain 
controlled in some way, shape, or form by China. That's a bad position to be in. And I think that having a vibrant steel industry and ironworks industry here in this country that can fund public infrastructure and our military operations is critically important. So I think it was a good bill. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great bill. Um, I, I will also just uh, throw a shout out here to a uh, once and current client, former state representative Bob Cortez, because these things always make for great politics as well. I remember when Bob in his first legislative session came to me and said, hey, I'm going to file a bill that says that any flag that's flown over a public building in Florida has to be a flag that's made in the United States of America. And I said, Bob, I don't know. I, that, that sounds a little too onerous, a little too restrictive. And uh, within a week, he was getting national headlines and national news for what a brilliant yeah. bill this was. And uh, so anyway, I think anytime you have a Buy America for public infrastructure, it makes for good politics as well. But Griff, I know, is not doing this because of the politics, but for the policy. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, sitting outside a coffee shop in Central Florida. It was, in, I think it was in Lake County. And there was a recruiter, a uh, military recruiter at the next table. And we, we could hear him on the phone talking to young people, trying to get them into, um, I forget which branch he was with, maybe Marine Corps, Army, I forget. Uh, and at the end, he like had a had some lapel pins and other kind of like giveaways. He walked over to, to our table and dropped a few on the table and said, you know, hey, folks, y'all can y'all can have these if you want them. And the guy sitting with me at the table flipped one of them over after he walked off and sure enough, made in China, you know, right on it. <laughs> it's just emblematic. It's like th- these things that you would think uh, – should be made here, uh, or you know, ought to be made here, just because of their, um, just because of the symbolic value, and just everything, everything is is made somewhere else. It seems like. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, well, speaking of things being made elsewhere, uh, how about our population being made elsewhere? I thought it was interesting to see some of the news reports that came out of the um, in parallel visit to the border uh, with. President Donald Trump and President Joe Biden, uh, the images were stark. Uh, I thought that uh, actually in this case, uh, you know, Trump, <laughs> I tell you, he's a master of the, of the image sometimes. When they made a decision to go down to the border about the same time that Biden announced that he was going to the border, I thought, mm, this is going to be interesting. We'll see how it pans out. We'll see how the press portrays it. But that image of Joe Biden walking very, very weakly, I mean, looking very frail, sort of hanging on to one of the border immigration uh, agents as they were giving him a tour of the border versus this very vibrant uh, Donald Trump who was uh, all over the place and was engaged and looked like he was ready to take command at that moment. I thought maybe uh, the image that, that carries Trump to victory this November. It is a stark contrast, and uh, I I didn't watch a lot. I mean, I saw some of the headlines talking about the uh, the border, um, the border patrol agents uh, union uh, leader being there with Trump and and saying some pretty pretty dramatic things. Um, and then, like on the radio uh, today, you're you're hearing some of Biden's comments. Oh, we need more resources for the border. I mean, that's always kind of the liberal or the leftist solution to things. We need more money. Uh, people have have somehow been cheated out of the uh, the funding that they need, and you know, of course, the the uh, the likely outcome there is that it's just more. It would just be more money to continue the policy that's in place, mm-hmm. which is an open border, an open right. door, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So, and you know, one one point to make about Joe Biden, um, 
it, just because he has trouble walking around, I mean, an obvious uh, comparison here is Governor Abbott, who suffers a disability. And, you know, he he's limited in what he can do visually, but it's not it's not some sort of physical ability. It's just a presence. It's this sense that Biden is uh, is not engaged fully mentally, that he's over the hill and that he's useful to the left. Like they don't mind having somebody who's maybe not all there, who's not really calling the shots himself. And I think that's what's so troubling to people is that you just, you see this like uh, it's not Manchurian candidate, but you know it's, it's this it's this uh, it's just this useful sort of puppet that that has uh, passed his prime for sure, but he still serves the interest of a leftist state that does not have Americans' interest at heart. Yeah, to his credit, Greg Abbott, governor of Texas in a wheelchair, looks a hundred times more vibrant than Joe Biden does walking. Yeah, uh, so. Uh, I do think it's an attitude. It's uh, a sense of being controlled, a sense that they're being uh, given or he's been given a sheet of talking points from which he can never deviate. Also, just the insanity of his logic. Uh, Yeah, we don't need to rehash everything here. You can go to multiple news outlets now where they provide analysis on what the president can do on his own to secure the border. Uh, The president has the authority to secure the border. That agency... um, is under his command. The Department of Homeland Security is under his command. The United States military is under his command. If he wanted to call out troops right now or send troops to the southern border to help assist with stopping the uh, flow of drugs, the flow of human trafficking, and the flow of, uh, of just population coming across the border right now, he's well within his right to do that. So what they're doing now by blaming it all on Congress, oh, we need more resources, we need more money, we need more this, we need more that, in my humble opinion, is just a blame game. And I think it continues to send a signal to the American people that uh, that the White House is completely inept and inert, can't can't act. I, they, they can't retreat from their talking points. I mean, they can't retreat from their message uh, because if they started to lock down the border, they would have to admit that it should have been locked down to start with. That's right. And that's, you know, intolerable to the to the leftist mindset. Well, I think in some respects they want it. They they want the border to fail. But I, I agree with you. I think they're sort of stuck in this quagmire, where if they act now, then they have to admit that for three years now that they could have acted and they have not. Uh, but the the uprising now that we're seeing in the polling, Matt, some more polling results came out yesterday, and that shows that the border crisis and immigration has become the far and away leader. Uh, we had mentioned a couple of weeks ago that in some Republican uh, districts around the country, uh, congressional districts, that the border issue was topping 67, 68 percent of people who said that's the leading issue of the country today, followed followed by uh, inflation. So people are seeing the national security crisis. They're seeing the pocketbook crisis. Nothing is being done by the White House and or Congress right now to take leadership on these things. And so I think they're going to be in a tough, uh, tough spot. According to the uh, Bloomberg set of Bloomberg polls that came out yesterday, if you look at all the swing states, uh, based on my electoral map, uh, I could see that Trump could win if the election were held today with about 312 to 315 electoral votes. And that is just devastating for the Democrats right now. It's it's uh, yeah, it's daunting. Uh, a lot can change. I mean, we still have months to go, uh, even to get to the nominating conventions. But uh, yeah, the the math is not looking good for them. It'll be interesting to see 
I, I, my prediction was, I said this on Twitter yesterday by July 4th, that Democrat candidates, down ballot Democrats, those running for Congress or re-election to Congress, will be telling Joe Biden not to come to their state to campaign with them uh, by the time we get to midsummer. Um, any thoughts on that? I would I would say the same thing if I was in their shoes. And, you know, I mean, it sounds like they're even the even the presidential campaigns probably not going to want him to leave the basement. Right. I mean, they're that's I think it's just it's the strangest thing where your candidate is both your your strength and your liability, you know, your greatest strength and your greatest liability. But I think that's definitely what they're dealing with. Yeah. 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 They'll long for the day of the fireside chat. Well, look. This has been a great segment just talking about this, getting this realigned with some of the national issues related to immigration and the border. But again, the border and uh, that crisis uh, that goes along with it at multiple levels, the fentanyl crisis, the human trafficking crisis, whereas that is topping America's thoughts, we also have a big inflation crisis, which is coming back to light this week. And that's also at the top of people's concern. So stick with us as we get into the fourth segment to talk about inflation and the White House's role in it. Don't go anywhere. America in View will be right back. Where universal truth and common sense reign supreme. It's Matt and Brent Doster with America in View. So, Matt, talking about the national crisis on the border uh, cannot be disassociated from the economic pain that people are feeling right now. Again, according to Bloomberg polls released this week, it looks like the electoral map is going to be a disaster for Democrats. There's always a chance that that could turn around. But I, I in fact, Matt, I would say many times this far out from an election, I would say the only thing that's going to save X candidate is if there's a national crisis, right? So if we were invaded or if there were a, a huge um, uh, national security crisis overseas, then I think that that could possibly save Joe Biden. But honestly, I think that their ability to deal with something head on of that nature is so weak and people have such little faith in them that at this point, I almost am ready to say it's a foregone conclusion that Donald Trump's going to win. I think a lot of people agree with you. Well, the question is whether you agree. But look, um, let's talk about inflation for a moment, because if you aren't irritated about the border crisis, let's talk about this insanity that we have going on right now related to inflation. So uh, we had uh, Stephen Moore on several weeks ago, noted economist, conservative economist. We had Grover Norquist on, who's the head of Americans for Prosperity, not Americans for Prosperity, Americans for Tax Reform. And uh, we were talking about the hidden taxes along with inflation. And people are feeling the pain. They're feeling the pain of higher prices. Uh, People note the fact that cereal is costing them 10 bucks a box, that when they go to fast food, uh, play, I mean, look, when I go to a Chick-fil-A now with my uh, children, I've got five, uh, you know, it's costing me a like hundred bucks. It's unbelievable to see the escalation in food prices. And it seems like it's happening almost every day. So what noted economists, real economists who are um, conservative and take an approach that government is the cause of these things have told us with their analysis is that every time government spends more money using the credit of future generations to pump up today's money supply, we have a net inflationary bump here that causes everything to go higher in price. And if you're making the same amount of money, then you lost value for your for your money. And that is, in effect, an inflationary tax on you. So again, we had inflationary numbers come out this week that showed that we are having another bump in inflation. 
Interest rates are going back up, which is going to be more cost for the American people. And here's the deal, Matt. In the midst of all that, the Biden administration is doing everything they can to tweak the rules to forgive billions of uh, dollars in a new round of student loan forgiveness. And uh, I just don't think they've made the connection here. I think this, too, is going to be the uh, one-two punch, the border and the inflation that's going to take them out in November. I will, I'll, I'll quibble with you on one minor detail of what you just said, which is that if government spends the money, that inflation goes up. It, the one thing that government does from time to time that's not totally invaluable is build infrastructure. And you can argue about the, the politics behind it. And, you know, you've got these bridges to nowhere and, and kind of um, or sometimes there's infrastructure that just doesn't need to be replaced or repaired. Mm-hmm. But in all things being equal, if a government built something that enabled enterprise, uh, expanded uh, access, et cetera, et cetera, it could have some value. I think what ends up happening is people get so wrapped up in the numbers. They look at inflation numbers. They read economists. They sort of pick the economists they like. They try to make some sort of an argument. And in the long run, most people really don't understand these numbers, including the economists. The economists, they have all this data. They cherry pick the one, the part of it that they want, right? The fundamental issue is whether the government is paying people to do something productive or whether the government is paying people to do nothing or, or do something unproductive. The student loan uh, debt issue is front and center of this of this debate in which people go to college, they overpay for it, and they do it on the backs of the taxpayers, theoretically that they're going to repay it. They get degrees that are not worth much, that the that the private industry does not reward them with good paying jobs that are that are comparable to the uh, amount of money they spent for that education. And then somebody like Joe Biden comes along and says, well, we're just going to let the taxpayers pay for all of that anyway. And that's therein lies the de- the decreasing of wealth because you're taking non-productive activity and you're you're taking people who earned their money with productive activity and, and reallocating it that way. It's Keynesian economics. I mean, it's redistribution. It's um, it, it takes many different forms. Sometimes it's welfare programs. Sometimes it's progressive taxes. Sometimes it's student loan uh, forgiveness. It's all the same basic idea and the same basic package. And it's very discouraging. It's discouraging just how little, um, I guess, embarrassment that the left has that basically they're engaged in legalized theft they're doing it through public policy, and they make no bones about it. They think rich people shouldn't have money. They think that workers shouldn't have money, and they think that people that have made good decisions like, hey, I'll go to a college that I can afford or I'll work through college so I can pay for it and not have debt. All of those people's good decisions, which should be rewarded, are being unrewarded, and then all the bad decisions are, are getting the opposite treatment. Yeah, I think that's all fair to say. I mean, there's certainly a – I like the fact that you brought in the fairness issue because there's a lot of people who are doing it right, uh, who have gotten loans and they've paid them off. And I do want to talk about whether it should even be a role of the federal government to engage in a student loan program. I'll I'll beat you to the punch. No. (laughs) I was hoping that was going to be your answer. Uh, You know, we can talk about truth in the Constitution um, and some redneck common sense related to this program, and it doesn't pass a smell test with all three. But let me just say this. Uh, Currently speaking, when uh, the United States Treasury uh, issues their reports on uh, assets that the American government holds, 
as a as a uh, as sort of a balance sheet, sort of a way for them to indicate that they are financially solvent. One of the big asset points that they have on the books right now to suggest that the American government is solvent is student loans. So it's the same way that like when a bank issues a, a loan to a, a homeowner, that loan, that paper is listed as an asset because if you don't pay, then they foreclose. Now I've always thought it's been a little bit of a it's been a little bit of a uh, uh, let's just say nebulous uh, asset. It's kind of like a credit card. They can go after you for making a promise to pay. They can go after you for extending personal credit to you. But it, since it's not necessarily tied to an asset, if you don't pay it back, they're usually involved in some sort of settlement program with you where their their so-called asset on paper has been devalued. They're really dependent upon the good faith and credit of that individual to pay that back. So that's been the same case with the United States issuing these student loans or guaranteeing backing these student loans is a better way to say it. But it has been listed as an asset. And so as they do this uh, sort of finagling of statutory power with the agency uh, at the Department of Education to forgive these student loans, essentially what they're doing, what the president is doing, is he is arbitrarily giving away the assets on the balance sheet of the United States government. And that is inherently making us weaker financially and also pumping up a very weak money supply. And if you thought of the analogy, if you had a private company with a with a president and CEO and a board of directors, and if the board of directors said, no, you can't give away our debt, and the president and CEO said, well, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway, I mean, what would, what would be the consequences? Yep. That he would either be fired or charged with a crime. I mean, there, there would be huge consequences to that. And uh, I, was, I was thinking just the same line you were, and I looked up the number. I mean, this is whatever came up top from a Google search, but- it's almost 40% of total federal assets is student loan debt. That's correct. That's ridiculous. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's not going to get collected in full, um, oftentimes because people just aren't going to pay it back anyway, but in this case, because it's going to be explicitly given, um, forgiven. So speaking of these assets, you know, one of the things we probably should talk about at some point in the future, maybe we'll have Representative Doug Bankson on because he's got a, uh, a gold and silver uh, legal tender bill that's been run through the legislative session this cycle, and and I don't know if it's going to be completely passed, but we should talk about that at some point in the future. But we could talk about gold standards. We could talk about other assets that the federal government has. Uh, we're not going to do that today. We just don't have enough time. But let's just do a quick little uh, litmus test here, Matt, on the student loan program in general. Um, looking at the United States Constitution, you may find this shocking. But the Founding Fathers didn't include anything about a student loan program in the original United States Constitution. Yeah, they were out to lunch, weren't they? Yeah, <laughs> that's correct. Even after many of them were, were great proponents of higher education, but they had no allowance for a guaranteed federal Now, how did anybody get a degree back then? I don't understand. Yeah, it's amazing. They had to work for it, and they had to work while they were going to school. Or they came from a privileged family, which is okay. Maybe they had an inheritance, but they had to work for it. Yeah, it's a crazy concept. It's any of these social programs that have existed, you know, decades or maybe at this point going on 100 years. That's the question you always have to ask. How did anybody get along without these programs before? Obviously, they did. It's easy, folks. Truth and the Constitution and some common sense. Freebie giveaways are never appreciated. We're creating an entitlement society. You need to go out and vote and make sure that we turn back the clock and get America back to being great again. 
Thanks for listening to America in View. For more information, go to AmericaInView.com. Make it-